G'day everybody and welcome to the coaching podcast. Can't wait to get into today's episode to inspire, improve and impact you with Dr. Jack Gropple. He's the co-founder of the Johnson Johnson Human Performance Institute. He's been inducted into the United States Professional Tennis Association Hall of Fame and he's had a profound influence in the world of athletics in sports science and in the corporate world. He will be sharing his three C's as to what makes a great coach. So let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Coaching Podcast, coaching for success in sport and business. Your host is Emma Doyle, the energy and high performance under pressure coach who is a world leader in unleashing human potential. Buckle up for this high octane session. Let him have it, coach. Get out, everybody. Inspire, improve, impact. I am here with Jack Gropple. I am so excited to chat to you, Jack. How are you, mate? Thanks for being on the show. Very good. It's great to talk with you, Emma. Thank you. All right. So let's kick it off. It is the Vegemite question. You either love Vegemite. it or you hate it. What's what's? <laughs> yeah, it's a pattern no, break. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah, I've tried it. Uh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't a specialty. I certainly don't look at it like peanut butter. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All right. Um, because you answered that way, can you kick off our episode with your worst coaching moment and what might be a lesson or two? The worst coaching moment, I can't mention the name of the athlete uh, because it's too confidential, but it was an athlete that I was trying to work with who had um, addiction issues. I mean, it was really clinical and I was trying to uh, help and support the athlete and coach, and I realized that I had to hand it off. I had to hand him off to a clinician. Um, his problem wasn't "quote unquote" a coachable problem. I uh, he needed he needed true help. He needed he. It wasn't even a mental health issue. It was mental illness, and it was an addiction. So he needed. That was a that was a very difficult moment for me because when you're a coach, you believe you can help everybody. I had to eat humble pie and say, you know, I'm not. This is not my sweet spot, and I'm still involved in that person's life, by the way, um, and and supporting him, and have been able to do some coaching. But it was at that moment in time where I couldn't coach him. He needed he needed actual medical help. What a great lesson straight away in knowing where, when to wear what hat and also yes. the importance of as as a coach in having a team around us so that we right. can refer people on to other people that we know and trust as well. That What about on the flip side, a coaching moment that went really well and what might be a lesson? Well, it's kind of a funny, it's a, it's a funny story and I have to be really careful because I, I want your, I want your listeners to, I'm not taking credit for this. So, but, but the urban legend it ha happens. So the funniest coaching story happened in the late eighties and I was at Ferris State University. Scott Schultz was the head of the Ferris State program. And for me, I just love telling the story. Um, and I did a program for all the Ferris State students on a I think it was a Thursday or something like that. And they all knew that Paul Rotert at the USTA, Paul was the administrator of sports science that they, and I was the director of player development for the Hopman tennis camp at Saddlebrook. They needed me to go to uh, Palm Springs to work with Michael Chang. Um, and it was basically out Michael's nutrition and fitness and everything else. And, and I'm not going to tell you the long story about it. I just, I'll tell you the funny, because what, what is the funny story about it? So I had a great session 
with the the students at Ferris State, I, I it was awful weather. I mean, feet feet of snow, not inches of snow, feet of snow. Fly from Great Grand Rapids through Chicago to Palm Springs, work with Michael for a few days, and then I I worked with Michael a lot over that next few months, and lo and behold, three months later, he wins the French Open, and um, all the the whole urban legend is that I went out and changed his whole fitness, which I did. I changed his fitness program quite a bit and worked with him a lot on nutrition. You know, um, but I, you know, Michael had to hit all those balls. I didn't hit a ball. And, but, but the urban legend is that I had a lot of influence on that. So I just, I just think that's a funny story. And, and I think we got to be careful when we take credit and things like that for our athletes. And I've got a lot of stories like that in tennis and uh, I've been really blessed in the, in the sport. Mm. And isn't it funny? Sometimes there's a change of coach and all of a sudden, you know, that team wins two rounds and it's all the credit is sometimes too much credit be placed on the coach. I agree 100%. I think at the end of the day, we as coaches have to realize that athlete still has to hit the ball. You know, we we can do all that we want, but they've still got to execute. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, at at this stage in my life, I can say this, I think, I think it's easy to get a little full of yourself. Yeah. (laughs) What about in the business world? There, there's been numerous, and I'm, I've been really blessed, as I said. When someone comes up to you and says, are you here a month later that their marriage got back together or that they were able to work with a boss that was impossible to work with? Or, um, I mean, and, that, and I, you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to, I don't want to be arrogant about this, but it happens a lot. I mean, Jim Lair and I were able to create a model a business model that was very, very successful. As you know, we were acquired by Johnson and Johnson and, and we had the great fortune to be very successful in the application of sports science concepts to business people. Now there are some funny corporate stories too. I mean, I was in Germany once training and, and I did a one day program and I talked about everything. And, and one of the things, for whatever reason, Something I said about nutrition stuck with one of the people in the room, and he walks up to me and 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 in his best English, he goes, I, "I I have to tell you that I've got your nutrition issue solved." And I said, "You do like that?" I said, "How's that?" And he goes, "Well, when I go home after work every night, I put my eating pants on," and and I said, "What?" And he's, "Yeah, it's sweatpants with no elastic in it," and he called those his eating pants. So you have those in business too. <laughs> That is hilarious. I just, yeah. I could just visualize that. That that came yeah. to very strong. Sure. That's that's great. All right. What about? Can you share with us a sliding doors moment in your life? Yeah. For me, this is a no brainer. I mean, I I give this person, you know, every award I've ever received, I give this person a shout out. So here I was. A lot of people don't know my story. Uh, my undergraduate degree was actually in wildlife biology, uh, because I got my degree. My father, because I didn't get a scholarship to play for the University of Illinois. Um, and I was gonna walk on and he said, well, if I've got to pay for your education, uh, you've got to study some, so our whole family were farmers. So I had to study agriculture. So I went to Illinois and studied agriculture for the sole reason that I could play tennis. And I was blessed to be able to make the team and I did and met some unbelievable people, had a, had a fun time playing tennis for in the Big Ten. And But I got my undergraduate degree in wildlife biology. Well, when I graduated, I couldn't get a job. So I went back to grad school and I started grad school in population genetics and being an outdoors guy, I was going to, my whole brain was going to be, I was going to be studying migratory habits of wildlife. And 
but but to study population genetics in a lab, here's what one of the things you have to do. And I and I totally mean this. This is going to be funny, and I mean it to be funny. I honest to gosh had to go to a lab twice a week and get test tubes that were full of flour and put fresh flour in the test tubes. So these tiny beetle called tribolium beetle that are about the size of a pen or pencil lead could breed more rapidly so that we could study off progeny of offspring and, 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 and quantify them. So I, I love to say, you know, this is going to be the, 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 PG rated part, but I love to say that my role as a grad student was making, creating an environment so beetles could procreate more, you know, more quickly. <laughs> and, and at 22, Emma, I was a mess. I'll never forget it. I was a mess. And my sister talked me into going to talk to people in kinesiology. And my dad and I were very estranged. And you know, I said, my dad will kill me. And she said, go ahead. It doesn't matter. Dad, dad won't, doesn't even need to know yet. You don't know what you don't know. And I met and the, the department head admitted me to the program. I knew nothing. I, the first semester, I had to take cadaver anatomy, uh, kinesiology, and ex-phys. And I fell in love with the field. I got straight A's. But I still was lost. So here I am, 22 and a half, lost, got straight A's, don't even have any idea what I'm going to do. But Dr. Charles Dillman, here's the moment you asked for. Dr. Charles Dillman, May of 1974, it was a very cold, crisp day in Champaign, Illinois, and he said to me, the, and, and Illinois has written about this for alumni, and um, the he said 17 words to me. He said, Jack, if you really apply yourself, you could one day become a pioneering leader in the science of tennis performance. And that was all it took. That was all. I created my own career. I created my own field of study. I did everything on my own. There was no field. Vic Braden was doing quite a bit. Stanley Plagenhoff out of Massachusetts was doing quite a bit. And that was it, and myself. And Vic Braden took me under his wing. Vic did an awful lot. Vic was an unbelievable mentor for me, as he was to hundreds um, and thousands who just loved him to death. But Vic opened a lot of doors for me as well. But Chuck Dillman saying those 17 words was the sliding door moment. And isn't it interesting we never realize the full power of an off-the-cuff comment, not, not to say it was off-the-cuff, but sometimes as coaches we can make these statements where we really do believe in somebody and years later they can come up to you and say, I'll never forget that day when we were sitting on the bleachers and you said this. And sometimes as coaches we don't always remember what we said until they, you know, maybe they they triggered the memory. But the the power of those 17 words and the power that we have as coaches with those statements is, is something that we should never take for granted. Never because, and Dr. Dillman and I, he's unfortunately, he's not in very good shape right now, but his daughter and I are communicating on LinkedIn. And I, like I, when I was inducted into the hall of fame, I sent the acceptance speech where I mentioned him. I try to let him know the impact he had on me. Coming full circle as well. That's that's right. awesome. All right. Our next question is our guiding question. You have answered it before. I'm very grateful that you feature in What Makes a Great Coach. It is in one to a maximum of three words. What do you think makes a great coach? Well, when you ask me this, you know, it, it just, it came to me. And then to be very honest, I mean, I don't think about, this isn't something that I keep on my radar every day. I'm just being very honest, but I think it comes down to, Connection. We're in the connection business. We're 
we're in the relationship business. So it's three C's. And the first C is connection. Above all else, connect. Don't just speak. I think sometimes we, if, you know, I, I love that part of it where we, you know, we learn everything. We learn how to read. We learn how to write. We learn how to speak. Nobody teaches us how to listen. And to have a true connection, you learn how to listen. Um, and I think, so connection is number one. Number two is character. Who are you ethically? Who are you at your core? And does your core come out? Here I am at my stage in life. I mean, I had someone write about this yesterday. I don't feel this way, but they said, you know, I gave a keynote yesterday and someone's a virtual and someone commented online about, you know, Jack doesn't have to do this anymore. Well, yes, Jack does between you and me. I mean, Jack, Jack loves doing this. Jack thrives in doing this. Jack wants to help people. I don't want to just go off to the pasture. I mean, as long as, as long as God's got this working, I'm going to be working. And um, so character, who are you at your core and why are you a coach? So connection and character, then curiosity. I mean, that at the end of the day, that's been the core of who I am. Uh, because, you know, creating my own field and starting in the sports sciences back in the in 1974 is when I started. Um, so I don't I don't mind that people know the 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 issue of being curious was at the essential part of who I am. How did how did how did things start happening? I will tell you, and I talk to my students about this a lot. Like somebody, you know, World Tennis was was exist. There were two magazines, Tennis and World Tennis. I'll never forget it. And again, I'm not going to mention a name, but in the early 80s, there was at the US Open, I I wasn't I wasn't affiliated with USTA yet. I became the chairman of sports science in 86. So this is about 82. But there was someone, and it wasn't Vic, it was a former professional player giving tips. And they gave an incorrect tip about how to hit top spin on the ball. And I was sitting in my living room in Champaign, Illinois, and I'm going, oh, really? And I've got all this. So I broke down all these high-speed uh, films. I took still shots. I sent it to World Tennis Magazine. I said, why don't you really have some – I mean, why don't we write how to teach? And then suddenly I became an instruction editor. And then suddenly tennis. I got involved with Tennis Magazine. And for 12 years, I was an instruction editor for Tennis Magazine. But that was the first – that was how I got in was I saw something being said incorrectly, had another vehicle, because CBS wasn't, that was CB, I think it was CBS was televising it. You're not going to get their attention, but a tennis magazine, I could get their attention. So I said all this, and then World Tennis invited me to, to write, and that was how I did it. And then, as you might know, I, I had the Ask the Professor column in the U.S. Professional Tennis Association for 25 years. So that was how I started writing. And... I just want to pick up on how even like in that story, the importance of questioning. Sometimes we get on the bandwagon when something's popular or trendy or, you know, remember the multi-segment forehand <laughs> you pull yeah. it back with your elbow oh, yeah. and, and yeah. then we were all out there teaching it. I mean, yeah. um, because it was trendy and it was popular and one, you know, one person had success and then, so then we all, all taught it. But I think that's what curiosity does. It's, it's a real superpower of, of coaches. I'm going, I'm going a bit off topic here, but why do you think more people are not curious? Well, I think we get set in our ways. I think one of the dangers in coaching is you coach the way you were coached. And you're not curious. And I think, you know, to be curious, 
I always tell people, even at my age, I don't, I never want to lose my childlike curiosity. Children, young children have a curiosity that I believe is profound to ask why. And th that was what I did. I'm all about, if there's an issue, what's the solution? I'm not about, this is wrong, I'm complaining. No, let's, so let's solve it. If there's a problem, let's solve it. That That's where the curious nature comes in. You know, for example, the multi-segment forehand, I never jumped on that bandwagon. Um, if you look at my books back in 78 and 82 and or eight, in 92, high tech, I mean, I talked about the unit turn. I talked about keep the strokes very, very simple. And that came from high speed film of the greatest athletes in the world that they had the simplest strokes in the world. So I was one of the, I never jumped on that bandwagon. When you get to meet other successful entrepreneurs and business coaches and people at the at the top of their field, whether it be sport or business, what's that one question that you always ask? What sparks Jack's curiosity? Why do you do what you do? I want to hear. And, and by the way, there's no judgment on their answer either. I mean, because I've heard all the way from I want to make millions to I care about changing people's lives to I want to develop a new technique of understanding. I want to develop a new environment in the workplace. Um, there's all kinds of answers, but I always love to understand why. Why, why are you doing this? Mm. I think it fuels coaches' energy as well because when that's really clear, when that answer is really clear, for me right now in my life, I've never been clearer. And, in fact, for many years I've struggled to answer that question because yeah. I, it's almost like I've liked so many different elements of coaching that I sometimes was like, you know, I coach sometimes because, you know, I really love in, inspiring kids or I really love working with adults or I really, really love working in corporate. But for me right now, my purpose has never been clearer, which fuels my energy and my motivation. What are your thoughts well, on that? That's key because I would, I would tell everyone and I teach, I just taught this yesterday with the group that I did the virtual keynote for, the most important question you'll ever ask yourself is what matters most right now? And don't just coach to be teaching something or to be helping. So why are you doing it? What matters most to you? You know, adopting my son from China, for example, my life changed the day they put that screaming three and a half year old in my arms. You know, I'd never had children before. And I go from not being a dad to being a dad in, in, in a second. And he hated my guts. So I had to figure, okay, how does how am I going to create safety? Why am I here? Why did I go to China? Why? I mean, I climbed Kilimanjaro with him five years ago. That's he and I at the summit awesome. right behind me. And he was 12 years old when we did that. I've got artificial knees. Why would you do that? Because I needed to create an adventure for he and I, it, whether we made it or not. It was all, it was all about purpose, but it was answers to the why. And what did he discover about you from that experience? He had no idea that I loved the outdoors the much as much as I do. I'll never forget him saying one day on a training hike, we were in the, we were in the woods somewhere on a I don't even know where we were. But he said, "Dad, the one thing I've learned now in all this training is that you are in your peaceful place when you're in the outdoors." And that meant so much to me because that's how I did, that's how I did grow up. And what has tennis helped you discover about yourself? Well, 
a lot. I mean, I owe everything to tennis. Um, as a child, as a young boy, as a teenager and a young man, tennis saved me from my father. I mean, my father and I had a very strange relationship and tennis got me out of the house. Um, tennis got me a great education, even though it was I didn't have a scholarship, but tennis got me through. Mm. Tennis created an, uh, it was an avocation. I loved it so much and then it became a vocation. And then- and then I was able to meet somebody like Jim Lair, and we were able to take our love for what we were doing and apply it and do something else. And I mean, we've honestly been able I've, I've been able to live the dream. I mean, honestly, I've been so blessed. I mean, you know, you, you think about again, and I'm not bragging because I, I'm not about this at all. But it's it's so humbling to think that you started a business from nothing with one other guy. We started in two, three bedroom condominiums. And now we were acquired by Johnson and Johnson. And now it's a, you know, several, several, it's a hundred thousand foot facility in Orlando. That is what we created. And mm. to think that that is even possible is beyond, I, it, it pinch me, just pinch me. So on that note, transferring tennis and, you know, the corporate athlete over into, into mm-hmm. business, yeah. what do you think, uh, some of the the real parallels like you know those real tennis sort of um I always talk about in my book micro moments of resiliency right we've got 20 seconds between points how quickly can you get over yourself and in business you need to have that you know those micro moments of resiliency so so it's almost future-based thinking and not dwelling too much on the past is one of my things that I always talk about how tennis can really benefit uh, corporate. What are your, some of your go-to parallels that crosses over? Yeah. Well, what we always believed, I mean, we, we had the three sciences, physiology, psychology, and nutrition. And that was the three sciences by which we developed the content for the human performance Institute. And physiologically, the physical training, you know, and, and to help, executives see they their perception is i sit at a desk all day i don't need to be fit you know when in fact what we start doing is talking about how the brain lights up when you get up and move and the more often you move throughout your day i just had an article that was uh published in sherm an interview i was part of the interview um society for health human resource management and um they um they talked about micro, the microbursts of re, of recoveries because we know that you mobilize oxygen to the brain if you get up and move more often. And we learned that from physical activity, nutrition, that food is a drug. I mean, the drugs you put in your body as food, that's going to light up your brain or it's going to slow you down. I mean, how are you eating? How are you feeling? And then the psychology is amazing. I mean, because you can get into what's a counterproductive behavior, what's a productive behavior, what's a you know, what, how do you, how do you visualize? How do you, how do you recover to your point? How do you recapture energy after a, a rough meeting? How do you prepare? How do you go from the emotional hit in the face to high performance? We learned all that from sport and we were able to apply it to business. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about agape. I yeah. would love to hear your yeah. definition of it. Cause when you're the one who first introduced me to the word when when we caught yeah. up about a year ago and right. its place in in the workplace and and also for those people that sort of are the naysayers around 
love in the workplace? What are you talking about, Jack? Yeah. And I understand it. First of all, you, I, again, historically, we have to understand in the late 80s and early 90s, when Jim Lair and I were talking about purpose, we were shown the door. Uh, it was soft. It was don't 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 bring that in the door. Stephen Covey was doing it. We were doing it. Um, there were a few others, but we were shown the door. And I think now we've gone. We, we've come. If you if you think about again, I know I'm doing a historical walk, but if you look at post ninety five, I love doing this when I'm in corporate groups. Anybody that was in the workforce before nineteen ninety five, the moment you left your workplace, it was very hard to find you. People had to leave a message on a machine or you might have had a cell phone, but they had to have contingency plans when you left the office. Well, that's gone because with the Internet and smartphones, you are accessible 24 7 365. Who taught us? Who's taught us how to have boundaries? Who's taught us how to be intentional? Who's taught us how to make the right choices? So now let's keep going with this purpose timeline. Purpose is now well accepted. Everybody talks about purpose. You got to find your purpose. You got to have purpose. Purpose will help you perform. You know, and I, I love I love talking about it now, 35 years later, 30 years later, how, but remembering 30 years ago, we were shown the door. And two years ago, two and a half, three years ago, I was in a conversation with Stanford University. And I said, I think the next step, and this is right in the middle of the pandemic. I think the next step in the business world is agape love which is unconditional love. And I said, now, and, and, and everybody take a deep breath because stay with me because I know the visceral reaction that that throws out. I think people struggle with the word love because they don't define it the correct way. Love has many different definitions. If you look at the Greek, there's numerous definitions for the word love. I mean, the one that everybody resorts to quickly is eros love, which is romantic love or erotic love. That's not what we're talking about. You know, the other one is phileo love, which is brotherly or sibling love. I'm talking about agape love, which is unconditional love of one's neighbor, of one of the of one's ally, not a friend, not a friend. It, it could be an enemy. I mean, you could argue Jack, Jack started to get into the Bible and everything else. I don't care whatever you want to say right now. But if we could make that shift of how we as leaders lead. And if we lead from, yes, let's help people find their purpose, but let's, even if it's not outwardly, let's intrinsically work from a standpoint of agape love toward people and let's teach it. I think we'd have a very different world, Emma. I think we'd have a very, very different world if we level set ourselves with that word. I worked with a concreting manufacturing company recently and one of their guiding principles is to assume a positive intent. Yeah. When we go into a conversation, when we go into a, a moment of conflict, often conflict is we're, we're servicing an unmet need as well. Correct. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, conflict can be healthy. Um, again, we have lost our in our society right now, we have lost the ability to have healthy debate. We have lost the ability to disagree and then to talk it talk it out and find common ground. We've honestly, it's gone. There's either you're either right or you're wrong, and that's it. Well, you're not coming from a place of love when you take that perspective. Mm. That's you're, you're beginning with a place of hate. And and I know that's a very strong word, but I believe that's where you are. If you've got a boundary and you're not willing 
to at least understand someone else's point of view, that's an issue. That's a problem. So how and, do we how do we get back? Well, I think we have to all start figuring out, start from what do we have in common? Now, right away, if you say nothing, that's not true because we're human beings and we're breathing the same air and we're eat, we've got to eat food. So don't even don't even start with there's nothing common because we, we've got to go back. Even if we go back to basic biology, start there that, you know, there's basic bio start there. And you can always find a place of commonality to work from, even if it's at the most mundane, basic, fundamental level. So does work-life balance really exist, Jack? Well, that was what I was interviewed in, in SHRM. It, it does not. It's more work-life integration. In other words, because balance, if you think about balance, physics, you know, what I grew up in in sports science, a balance is, an, is like a teeter-totter. You're never going to find that in business. You spend more time working than you do anything else in your life. You're not going to find an equal balance, but you can learn to integrate your work in your life and you can learn to have boundaries in your work in your life and you can learn to have be intentional in your work in your life. So I'm, I think that, I think it was brilliant that a group, I mean, Sherm is the most well-known human resource company or organization in the world. And I'm, I'm so pleased that they came out with this article. It just came out three days ago. Okay, well, I'll put it in the. I'll make sure I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah you should. It'd be 100%. good. Hundred percent. Yeah. The Coaching Podcast is sponsored by the Samson Agency, a boutique talent agency managing entertainers, artists, and athletes. You can learn more at thesamsonagency.com. And if you're interested in becoming a coach, check out opendoorcoachingusa.com for all our latest courses in Leader as Coach and our High Performance Workplace Coaching Certification. Now let's get back to the show. You know, we spoke about earlier that those 17 mm -hmm. words that change your life, you know, who are some people that you, you follow or, or even quotes that you, you live by? A person that I always quote, John Wooden, the very famous basketball coach. He is, I mean, his, he, just look him up. I mean, the quotes are just amazing. You can find John Wooden quotes everywhere. And he was a very spiritual man. He was a very, but he knew how to coach. This is a man that coached at the highest level of college basketball, coached some of the greatest stars ever to play the game. Bill Walton, you know, Lou Alcindor, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, many others. And he was able to work with them through love. It comes back to Agape. Here was a man who worked with high performers and he was able to coach them from a position of love. So if I were to tell people to, to, to follow someone, it would be the work of John Wooden. It's withstood the test of time, hasn't it? It really has. Especially it really as it has. relates to character as well. Yes. yes. All right, let's finish with in one to a maximum of three words, what do you think makes a great leader? Well, I think if, if you're giving me that limitation, I've just got to come up with one word and that's character. And caring, you know, let's get another C, character and caring. Yeah. So you've got high character with yourself, but you care about other people. Mm. You're not just out for the dollar. You, you've got to make a dollar because that's what business is. But a great leader has high character and they're very caring mm. in how they work and how they interact with people. Yep. Well, 
Jack, we could talk for another hour on all of these topics. Love to. <laughs> but uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show uh, with Connection, Character, Curiosity, Care, uh, and so much more. Agape love, thank you from my heart to yours for being on thank the you. show. Thank you. It was my privilege. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Coaching Podcast, please share it with a fellow coach. And thanks for listening.